of Lions, Dragons, and Turkish Delight, CD number two. Most of us, when you study an author or a writer or even a figure in scripture, will have favorite statements they make, statements that seem to encapsulate everything that that individual stood for and taught, kind of the theme of his life. So if I had to pick a theme for C.S. Lewis, it would be this very short little statement that he made. He said, joy is the serious business of heaven. And I believe that that is true. And almost everything that he taught, said uh, in his life uh, after his conversion to Christianity, because there was a time in his life when he did not believe in God or even in Christ in his earlier life. To get us kind of back on track with a full head of steam, let me just review some of the things that we talked about last week of C.S. Lewis's philosophy. I kind of try to divide them into six ideas that, that we discussed last week uh, by way of a little bit of a, a review for us. These are things that dovetail very beautifully with LDS philosophy and belief. Number one, briefly, God desires us to be, to use Lewis's words, drenched in joy. Joy is the serious business of heaven. Number two, that joy ultimately means to live life qualitatively as God lives it, to be in effect gods and goddesses, as Lewis said, radiant, pulsating with love, wisdom, and energy. That is our destiny, the goal to which we seek. Number three, this means that the individual is immeasurably important more important than civilizations, cultures, arts, nations, whole worlds. We will remember the galaxies as an old tale, Lewis wrote. Number four, this will necessitate great changes. We must be new creatures, not just new kinds of men and women. The lizards must come off. The dragon skins must be peeled back. This is sometimes painful and requires a great deal of effort. But it is something that we must not dare not to dare. It is only that which will bring us ultimate joy. Number five, we are but a hollow God wishes to fill, Lewis said. There is something empty in us that no earthly thing can fill. We come to earth with a longing, a divine homesickness, to use Paul's words, uh, an earnest of future things, a haunting memory that teaches us that our deepest fulfillment and our greatest happiness lies elsewhere than this mortal existence. We belong to a far country. The promise of the fulfilling of that hollow, that longing, that divine homesickness, the overflowing of that hollow is the prime motivator for removing the dragon skins. And number six, the longing which tells us of our eternal home, our far country, is also a desire for a relationship which is at the center of the longing. 
It is our Father in heaven and his Son that we yearn for. As Lucy says to Aslan at the end of the voyage of the Dawn Treader, how shall we live never meeting you? I repeat, joy is the serious business of heaven. It is so serious that every conceivable opportunity to obtain it will be allowed to us. Often students will ask me of all ages, do you think we get a second chance? How many have ever wondered that? Am I going to get a second chance? If I blow it, do I get another chance? How many chances? Do I get three? Do I get four? I always answer that question with a quote from Lewis out of The Problem of Pain. I believe it sincerely. He said, I believe that if a million chances were likely to do good, they would be given. So we'll get all the chances that we conceivably can have, that God can offer. In the great divorce, even those in hell can come to heaven and stay if they desire it deeply enough, if they're willing to make changes, to remove the lizards, to give up the dragon skins, to abandon their most precious things. In the great divorce, uh, Lewis writes, never fear. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. Alma teaches us the very same thing, and Alma would know, right? He was in the midst of hell, and he wanted out. He simply asked, and the Savior brought him out. And so he says, one, raised to happiness according to his desires of happiness, or good according to his desires of good, and the other to evil according to his desires of evil. Now the decrees of God are unalterable, Therefore, the way is prepared, and whosoever will may walk therein and be saved. Our will will be done, or God's will will be done, and his will for us. Well, if joy is a serious business of heaven, and we all desire happiness, Joseph Smith taught that, happiness is the object of our existence. And with a million chances to do good, what's the problem? Ah, we all like Turkish delight too much. Now, if you've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or you saw the movie, you'll remember that Turkish delight is the treat that the white witch gives to Edmund in order to turn him a traitor. It was Lewis's symbolism for sin. Now, I didn't know anything about Turkish delight until I met my wife. She's from Canada, and they had it up there. So sometimes I tease her and say, Turkish delight symbol for sin it must have been invented in Canada. But she, uh, she doesn't agree with that. It was, at least in the Chronicles, Lewis's symbol for sin, for those things that tempt us away from the good, from Aslan, that waylay us. If you remember, uh, Edmund does not enjoy the little meal 
of wholesome food in the beaver's hut. And Lewis says this, Edmund had eaten his share of the dinner, but he hadn't really enjoyed it because he was thinking all the time about Turkish delight. And there's nothing that spoils the taste of good ordinary food half so much as the memory of bad magic food. That is true in many, many areas of life. That is why the Lord tells us as parents to raise our children in light and truth so that they will naturally gravitate to it. So we have to learn to reject the Turkish delight. And be careful that if we eat too much Turkish delight, it may spoil the taste of other good, joyful things that God would have us have. Lewis uh, tried to identify and spent a great deal of time and a lot of writing trying to identify for us the various and many types of Turkish delight that might spoil our appetite for true happiness and joy. He wrote whole books about it. The Abolition of Man, The Problem of Pain, The Great Divorce, and of course, his most famous and the book that really launched his career, The Screwtape Letters. Ironically, most of us are pretty good at tasting Turkish delight at the expense of real joy. There's a really wonderful moment in The Magician's Nephew where Aslan, who if we remember is the Christ figure, wants to help one of the characters, but he really can't. He says, I cannot tell that to this old sinner. I cannot comfort him either. He has made himself unable to hear my voice. If I spoke to him, he would hear only growlings and roarings. And then again, one of my favorite lines, O oh, Adam's sons, how cleverly you defend yourselves against all that might do you good. So let us look at some of the Turkish delights in the box of candy that is often presented to us by the world. Now, I'd love to have time to do all the different deviations and wayward wanderings that Lewis warns us about, but time will not permit. But I would like to do a few that I think he emphasized and that are particularly pertinent to our own day and our own age. So Turkish delight number one as we reach into the box is one called noise. Noise. Screwtape hated silence and music. And this is what he says about it. Music and silence, how I detest them both. How thankful we should be that ever since our father entered hell, and remember our father for Screwtape would be Lucifer. Ever since our father entered hell, though longer ago than humans reckoning and light years could express, no square inch of infernal space and no moment of infernal time has been surrendered to either of those abominable forces. All has been occupied by noise. Noise, the great dynamism, the audible expression of all that is ruthless. Noise, which alone defends us from silly qualms, despairing scruples and impossible desires. We will make the whole universe a noise in the end. We have already made great strides in this direction as regards the earth. 
the melodies and the silences of heaven will be shouted down. I don't know how your lives are, but I find my life often filled with a great deal of noise. I have nothing against modern technology. the transistor radio was just coming out when Lewis was writing, and he viewed it uh, not favorably. I've often wondered what he would think of Blackberry's iPods, cell phones. They're tools, they're good, but they have a tendency to surround us with probably more noise than maybe is good for us. In a poem he wrote, Clamor shall clean put out the voice of wisdom. Harpy wings filling your minds all day with foolish things will tame the eagle thought till she sings parrot-like in her cage to please dark kings. Now again, I say I'm not, nor do I suppose, Lewis would be deeply against a lot of things that we have technologically in today's world. I work with college students, and it's interesting when I walk across campus or I ride on tracks, I would estimate that at least 50% of all people I see pretty much on the street anymore have the little wires coming down out of their ears to some sort of noise. Now, it wasn't just noise but the denying of solitude, because not all the sounds going into their ears are negative sounds. It's just that there is so much sound. There is a need in our lives for time to meditate, to reflect, to ponder. The spirit rarely shouts. We must invite it. Sometimes sheer business and busyness crowds it out. Not always negative. But the accumulated amount of things we do effectively removes solitude from our lives. We don't experience quiet enough. Time to form deep friendships, family relations, relations with the Spirit, with God. Lewis wrote, There is a crowd of busybodies, self-appointed masters of ceremonies, whose life is devoted to destroying solitude wherever solitude still exists. And even where the planners fail and someone is left physically by himself, the wireless, and again, that was his age, we'd have all our modern uh, technological marvels. And even where the planners fail and someone is left physically by himself, the wireless has seen to it that he will be never less alone than when he is alone. We live, in fact, in a world starved for solitude, silence, and privacy, and therefore starved for meditation and deep, true friendship. When the modern world says to us aloud, you may be religious when you are alone, it adds under its breath, and I will see to it that you are never alone. That is one of the enemy's great stratagems. Screwtape, interestingly enough, was always very interested in the mind. There are a number of chapters in the Screwtape letters dealing with the mind and what he was either trying to take out of it or put into it. But there's no question as you read the Screwtape letters that he was more interested in what he could keep out of the mind than what 
he could put into the mind. And he makes this interesting observation. This is again Screwtape speaking. It is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. And today, he is very effective in keeping a lot out through noise, busyness, hurry. Often the most important things are sacrificed for those things. Well, let's go into the box and pick out another Turkish delight and flavor it. This is a small one, but it's very effective. I would call it the Turkish delight of extremes. Extremes, to push things always to the extremes. In the screw tape letters, uh, World War II is going on, but screw tape isn't really too interested about the war in and of itself. The war was effectively neutral. Now it could be used, but it could be used in a number of different ways. So screw tape writes, to uh, Wormwood, give me without fail. Uh, Wormwood is the other devil that is exchanging letters with Screwtape. Give me without fail in your next letter a full account of the patient's reactions to the war so that we can consider whether we are likely to do more good by making him an extreme patriot or an ardent pacifist. There are all sorts of possibilities. In a letter later on, he says, I had not forgotten my promise to consider whether we should make the patient an extreme patriot or an extreme pacifist. All extremes, except extreme devotion to the enemy, are to be encouraged. By the enemy, screw tape would mean, obviously, God. Lucifer doesn't care if we have crippling deep guilt or easy rationalization. He's as effective with questioning cynical skepticism as he is with mind-numbing, blind, obedient rigidity. He likes a complacent, lazy, apathetic person or an intolerant, zealous fanatic. As long as they're pushed there is a, a verse of scripture that uh, sometimes gives Latter-day Saints fits, particularly missionaries. It's the very end of the book of Revelation where we are told don't add or diminish from the writings of the book. Uh, you're all familiar with that. And often it is used to suggest that, uh, well, you shouldn't have a Book of Mormon or a Doctrine and Covenants because that's adding to the scriptures. Now, John is quoting a verse in Deuteronomy at the end of Revelation. And the true meaning of don't add or diminish from the scriptures means don't make a commandment, a principle, a policy, a standard, uh, an ordinance. Don't make it more than it is. On the other hand, don't make it less than it is. That's one of the reasons we call the path the straight and narrow path. And often people will get gospel hobbies and they'll, they'll become extreme in something. And the Lord will have to say, wait a minute, you're making the commandment more than the commandment is. Or they'll diminish and he'll say, wait a minute, you're making it less than it is. 
We just need to stay on the straight and narrow and not fall off to the broad side of the path, the ads side of the path, or to the other side, neither add nor diminish. We must be careful of the Turkish delight of extremes. Well, we reach back into our box. There's a kind of a glitzy Turkish delight, very appealing. It's one of the first we may be tempted to pick up. It's the Turkish delight of materialism. And Lewis wrote a great deal about it. In the uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there is a, uh, a moment when the children uh, are exploring an island and they come upon a pool of water. And as they look down into the depths of the water, they see a golden statue lying at the bottom of it, its hands above its head like a diver would make, solid gold. And they wonder how they can get that out. And one of them, to test how deep the water is, takes a spear and lowers it kind of down into the water to see how deep. But as he lowers it, the end of the spear becomes golden and heavy until he has to drop it. And it drops down and it now looks like it's gold. Now they think that it's probably something maybe with the sunlight that are making these things this way until finally one of the children looks down and notices that the tips of his shoes have turned to gold where they had come in contact with the water. And then the truth dawns on them that everything the water touches turns to gold and that the man at the bottom must have been somebody who was hot and dove into the pool. They back away immediately. And Aslan is also seen on a ridge growling at them as they begin to argue about who gets to claim the water. For obviously anybody who controlled that would be fabulously wealthy. So Aslan growls his warning and they back away. They decide to name that particular pool Death Water. Death water. Materialism was a very dangerous thing. Prosperity knits a man to the world, Lewis wrote. He feels that he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his sense of importance, the growing pressure of absorbing and agreeable work, build up in him a sense of being really at home on earth, which is just what we want. That was Screwtape speaking. Remember, Lewis felt that we were not supposed to feel on at home on earth. Our home and our happiness and our joy was somewhere else. But materialism tends to dull the longing of our hearts. Remember, we are made for another country. To be overly comfortable in this one may not be a good sign. Now, it was not just having money or things that Lewis warned us against, but the demanding, exhilarating, masculine, serious feeling of making it. That was also captivating, a kind of a proud competence. In a letter once he wrote to a friend, uh, otherwise we merely confirm the majority in their conviction 
that the world of business, which does with such efficiency so much that never really do it needed doing, is the real, the adult, and the practical world. And that all this culture and all this religion are essentially marginal, amateurish, and rather effeminate activities. Now, I don't think it was against business per se. A lot of us are in business activities. But that there was a danger for a society who was too much involved in buying and selling, as he said. There was a danger in it that you didn't need God. The scriptures call it, the Book of Mormon, carnal security. It's the all is well in Zion problem. When all is well is meant, and that is what it means in that verse. Money in the bank, a soaring stock market, and our own wise, skillful, investment-oriented mind. Everyone has noticed, uh, Lewis wrote in The Problem of Pain, how hard it is to turn our thoughts to God when everything is going well with us. All is well in Zion. We have all we want is a terrible saying when all does not include God. We find God an interruption. As St. Augustine says somewhere, God wants to give us something but cannot because our hands are full. There is nowhere for him to put it. The scriptures have very little good to say about wealth. I, I, I offer sometimes students a challenge to find verses of scripture that have good things to say about wealth. Now, he doesn't always have bad things to say about it. Always great warnings. Great warnings. Christ said, this is Lewis again, in a book called God in the Dock. Christ said it was difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Refer no doubt to riches in the ordinary sense. But I think it really covers riches in every sense. Good fortune, health, popularity, all the things one wants to have. All these things tend, just as money tends, to make you feel independent of God. Because if you have them, you are happy already and contented in this life. You don't want to turn away to anything more. And so you try to rest in a shadowy happiness, as if it could last forever. Hence, in Lewis's philosophy, the need of trials, occasionally, and we'll talk about trials here before the end of the, the, the hour. We need trials occasionally to remind us of what is truly important. Lest we become like the rich fool, who the more he had, the bigger he wanted. For wealth does not know the word enough. You and I see it in the ever-increasing sizes of houses, for instance. One of the dangers, Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, of having a lot of money is that you may be quite satisfied with the kind of happiness money can give you. And so fail to realize your need for God. If everything seems to come simply by signing checks, you may forget that you are at every moment totally dependent on God. 
Now, materialism leads to the next Turkish delight. This one has a foil wrapper on it. <laughs> In Lewis's idea, it was the big sin. And that sin was pride. Now, Latter-day Saints, for us, we would probably say the big sin is immorality. Uh, Lewis said a lot about immorality. And so much is written and said about that, warnings against uh, pornography and, and, and sexual relations outside boundaries God has established that I, I'm not going to deal with that. Lewis did deal with it, but he felt pride was the big center of the Turkish delight box foil wrapped candy that was so tempting to all of us in so many ways. And the problem with pride was the idea of competition. And we do tend to be competitive people. In Mere Christianity, Lewis wrote, the point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It is because I wanted to be the big noise at the party that I am so annoyed at someone else being the big noise. Now what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. It is competitive by its very nature. The other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. President Benson, in his landmark talk on pride, quoted from this very section of mere Christianity. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone. The idea of more makes you better is a very difficult temptation to resist. I think pride is the greatest danger for us, and I think Lewis felt that it was the greatest danger for us because any differences between two people is an invitation to pride. And therefore, almost every minute of the day, as long as you can see that you are different from somebody else, somehow, some way, the idea might come into the mind that my difference is better than the other person's difference. In Jacob chapter 2, when they are dealing with pride, the Nephites are dealing with pride, Jacob says to the people something that is an echo of Lewis. I often wondered if he read Jacob. Jacob says, The hand of providence has smiled upon you most pleasingly. Because some of you have obtained more abundantly than your brethren, you are lifted up in pride because you suppose you are better than they. See that more better idea. Any two things is an invitation to pride. A number of years ago when I was teaching at BYU, uh, a lesson on pride out of Jacob chapter, I asked the students to do an experiment with me. What we decided we would do is carry a little notebook in our pockets for a whole week and every single time the thought came into the mind of I'm better because of some difference, we'd write it down. Not that you gave in to it, but just that 
the possibility was there. And then after a week, we would compare what, what we found. That was really fun to come back the next week and see what the students had. Now, this was uh, in Provo on a, on a university campus, and so obviously they were going to be doing things that were of a college nature. Here were some from their list. Looks, physical appearance, which apartment complex you were in. Some apartment complexes were better than other apartment complexes. What you were majoring in. Engineering weighed heavier in their minds than elementary education. Whether you were getting a BA or a BS. BS required science. Left brain. Others said, no, no, the BA is the more important, right? Language. Every cultured person can speak at least two languages. What states they were from. California ranked higher than, say, Idaho. With all due respect to people from Idaho, I'm just telling you what they said. Okay. The cars they drove, their girlfriends or boyfriends, some obvious ones like clothes, grades, GPAs, what job they had working at the MTC ranked higher than a janitor in the Wilkinson Center. And on and on the list went. Well, I decided that week that I would do it with them, and so I had my little card. I wrote it down, too. Now, as fate would have it, that very week, my uncle, who ran an exclusive, I emphasize that word, clothing store in Ogden, was moving to Palm Springs and getting rid of all of his inventory. He could not sell a $600 overcoat. Now, this was about... 20 years ago. I don't know what a $600 overcoat would cost now. It was beautiful. It's a beautiful coat. And he gave it to me because he wouldn't need it in Palm Springs. Brand new. I remember putting that on and walking across campus, looking at everybody else in their London fog overcoats. <laughs> Mine had camel hair. Bone buttons, fully lined, light beige. I can't wear that coat. I just, I just finally had to take it off because that coat will take me right to hell. I just know it. <laughs> it's hanging in the closet. I would give it to D.I., but I don't want to tempt somebody else. <laughs> right. Well, I beat down pride all week long. I just tried to beat down every I'm better because I have more or different all week long. And you know, by the end of the week, pride is like a gopher in your backyard that has a hundred holes. And he constantly pops his head up to say, I'm better because. And you just have to take the bat of humility and beat him down wherever he pops up. And I did that all week long. And at the end of the week, you stand there with your bat and you look at the backyard of your soul and no gopher of pride is poking his head up. And I said, by golly, I have conquered pride. <laughs> there aren't very many people who can conquer pride. <laughs> I must be better than other people. <laughs> Lewis noticed that thing. He wrote, all virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them. Now, by us, this is screw tape writing again. 
This is especially true of humility. Catch him at the moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection, by Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately pride, pride at his own humility, will appear. If he awakes to the danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud of his attempt, and so on through as many stages as you please. But don't try this too long for fear you'll awake his sense of humor and proportion, in which case he will merely laugh at you and go to bed. Lewis felt that the solution to pride was to meet God. In God you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that and know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. And God is above us all. So to meet God and to truly know God would cure pride. As gratitude would cure pride. For pride and gratitude can exist in the same soul at the same time. So if we have a lot, and we do, let us be grateful to God for the gift of it. For in that we dull the taste of Turkish delight that is sometimes so appealing. In a letter he wrote, once we conquer pride, he wrote, then one can really for the first time say, thy kingdom come. For in that kingdom there will be no preeminences, and a man must have reached the stage of not carrying two straws about his own status before he can enter in. As in almost uh, all of Lewis's writings, uh, the result of putting myself in line with God and God's desires was joy. Happiness was always the result. And he believed there was not only joy in humility, but also tremendous relief. Uh, we are too prone to what I call playing watch me daddy. My children, as they would grow up, they would always say, watch me daddy, watch me. <laughs> your children do that. Didn't your children do that also? Watch me daddy, watch me. Well, some of us never grow out of playing watch me daddy. Right? We do it with houses we build and cars we drive and things. Where we're just always saying, watch me, watch me. So Lewis in Mere Christianity addressed himself to what I call the watch me daddy problem. I wish I had overcome the watch me daddy. I do my own watch me daddies. But I try to follow Lewis's counsel here. God wants you to know him, wants to give you himself. And he and you are two things of such a kind that if you really get into any kind of touch with him, you will in fact be humble delightedly humble, feeling the infinite relief of having for once got rid of all the silly nonsense about your own dignity, which has made you restless and unhappy all your life. He is trying to make you humble in order to make this moment possible, trying to take off a lot of silly, ugly, fancy dress in which we have all got ourselves up and are strutting about. I wish I had got a bit further with humility myself, 
If I had, I could probably tell you more about the relief, the comfort of taking the fancy dress off, getting rid of the false self with all its, look at me and aren't I a good boy, and all its posing and posturing. To even get near it, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in the desert. Now we go back to our box of Turkish delight. Now Turkish delight kind of, for those of you who have never had it, kind of has a jelly stuff. It's kind of inside. How many have ever had Turkish delight? Oh, okay, you all know. I mean, you know, not spiritual Turkish delight, the real stuff. We've all tasted spiritual Turkish delight. Well, jelly is an appropriate center of Turkish delight for this next aspect. I call it uh, the jelly people instinct. We call it the herd instinct, the desire to be like everybody else, to conform. Youth are especially prone to this aspect of Turkish delight. I get the phrase jelly people from something Lewis wrote in a little piece about a toast that screw tape makes at a banquet for all the devils. They are eating the souls they have. And it's quite humorous. There's, a, a for instance, a casserole of adulterers. And, you know, uh, roast embezzlers, and, anyway. And they're, and they're crunching on them, okay? And in there, he speaks of the desire of humanity to constantly conform. And he says, how can a jelly not conform? And so, so many of us are just jelly people. We, we, if, the, if the world says we're supposed to think or look or act this way, we kind of ooze into that mold. And if it shifts, we kind of conform to that. In Screwtape's idea, this was a delightfully helpful instinct. And part of the reason was that he felt it would thwart God's purposes. Lewis felt that in Godhood, all the unique individualities would be brought out in greater number. Only in wickedness is everybody the same. In goodness, everybody was different. So here's a little piece from Screwtape's toast at the dinner where they're munching on the souls they've captured. God wanted to make saints, gods, things like himself. Is the dullness of your present fare not a very small price to pay for the delicious knowledge that his whole great experiment is petering out? But not only that, and then some very insightful words concerning he wrote this before the 1960s. As the great sinners grow fewer, and the majority lose all individuality, the great sinners become far more effective agents for us. Every dictator or demagogue, every film star or crooner, I'll tell you how old that was, talking about crooners, we would say rock stars, right? Every dictator, every film star, every crooner can now draw tens of thousands of human sheep with him. They give themselves what there is of them to him, in him to us. There may come a time when we shall have no need to bother about individual temptation at all, except for the few. Catch the bellwether. 
and his whole flock comes with him. Uh, the modern mass media, uh, we would say, has been the engine that drives this. It is one of the downsides of the global village. Continuous screw tape. I am credibly informed that young humans now sometimes suppress a taste for classical music or good literature because it might prevent their being like folks. That people who would really wish to be and are offered the grace which would enable them to be honest, chaste, temperate, to accept might make them different, might offend the way of life, take them out of togetherness, impair their integration with the group. They might, horror of horrors, become individuals. Now, like you and me, you're probably very nervous about your children. You know, it's interesting. You can put 18, 19, 20 years into a child, and two weeks of a friend can unravel everything you put into it. They enter in teenage what I call the friend worship stage of life. And it's very important that they like what everybody likes. And screw tape knew that was material to work with. The deepest likings and impulses, Lewis says through screw tape again, of any man are the raw material, the starting point with which God has furnished him. To get him away from those is therefore always a point gained. Even in things indifferent, it is always desirable to substitute the standards of the world or convention or fashion for a human's own real likings and dislikings. I myself would carry this very far. I would make it a rule to eradicate from my patient any strong personal taste which is not actually a sin. You should always try to make the patient abandon the people or the food or the books he really likes in favor of the best people, the right food, the important books. One of my own patients said on his arrival down here, meaning into hell, I now see that I spent most of my life doing neither what I ought to do nor what I liked to do. There's a wonderful image in the book of Daniel when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand and everybody else falls when the music plays before the great idol that has been set up. Far too often that's what happens. The music of the world plays and when everybody bows, we bow. And it is very difficult to stand. Can you see those three young men standing there with everybody else bowing? Now for adults, it sometimes comes in the temptation of what we call political correctness. We want to somehow kind of match the things of the world. The use of fashion in thought, again I'm back to Lewis, is to distract the attention of men from their real dangers. We, meaning screw tape and his little group, we direct the fashionable outcry of each generation against those vices of which it is least in danger and fix its approval on the virtue nearest to that vice which we are trying to make endemic. The game is to have them all running about with fire extinguishers whenever there is a flood and all crowding to the side of the boat which is already nearly gunwale under. Thus we make it fashionable to expose the dangers of enthusiasm at the very moment when they are worldly and lukewarm. 
Cruel ages are put on their guard against sentimentality. Lecherous ones against Puritanism. I might add, in our own, in our own world, pornographic ones against censorship. The enemy loves platitudes of a proposed course of action. He wants men, so far as I can see, to ask very simple questions. Is it righteous? Is it prudent? Is it possible? Now, if we can keep men asking, is it in accordance with the general movement of our time? Is it progressive, reactionary? Is this the way that history is going? They will neglect all the relevant questions. Jesus did not say to us, go into all the world and tell the world that it is quite right. Lewis wrote, everything not eternal is eternally out of date. But sometimes we are just so deeply interested in... There was a standard, Lewis felt, that we could judge all kind of political correct things against. And that was the standard of Christianity. He wrote, the standard of permanent Christianity, because he was very distressed at movements within Christianity. The standard of permanent Christianity must be kept clear in our minds. And it is against that standard that we must test all contemporary thought. In fact, we must at all costs not move with the times. We serve one who said, heaven and earth shall move with the times. But my works shall not move with the times. Now, it was essential along there, if we, if we, we might even make this another Turkish delight, that I would call, cut them off from the past. It was essential to cut every generation off with all other generations. Uh, the scriptures originally were called, uh, maybe some of you are aware of this, Book of Remembrance. Book of Remembrance, not scriptures. Meaning, these are the ideas, the people, the principles, the lives, the truths that God wanted us to remember. Over 6,000 years we have those. Lewis wrote in a little book called Fern, Seed, and Elephants, a man who has lived in many places is not likely to be deceived by the local errors of his native village. The scholar, we would say the scriptural scholar, has lived in many times and is therefore in some degree immune from the great cataract of nonsense that pours from the press and the microphones of his own age. We will recognize in the past problems that we see in the future, and we'll see how they dealt with them. Screwtape said, since we cannot deceive the whole human race all the time, it is most important to cut every generation off from all others. For where learning makes a free commerce between the ages, there is always the danger that the characteristic errors of one age may be corrected by the characteristic truths of another. One of the greatest of all the Turkish delights in the box of Turkish delights is the delight of judging other people. 
Now I say that because I know that delight. There's a certain sticky, sweet taste to the natural man in judging others. Part of it has to do with pride. In the Chronicles of Narnia, it's interesting that uh, almost always the children were interested in Aslan's dealing with somebody else. And they always kind of wanted him to explain what he was doing with somebody else. And Aslan would always respond with this. I am telling you your story, not hers or his. I tell no one any story but his own. But we're always interested in everybody else's story. And since it is so easy to find faults in everybody else, why not look? So Lewis did have a lot to say about just trying not to judge individuals, organizations, other religions. One of the reasons he was so successful, why every Christian group claims him. We claim him, the Baptists claim him, the Methodists claim him, the Catholics claim him. We all are fed by him is somehow he was able to give, as he talked about Christianity, a non-judgmental aspect. He just didn't enter into all the things that we tend to judge one another. In the screw tape letters, screw tapes suggest that church is a good place for the victim they're trying to destroy. Because in church, he'll be able to see lots of other people's faults and accuse them of hypocrisy. When he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees neighbors. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. All you have to do is keep out of his mind the question that if I, being what I am, can consider that I am in some sense a Christian, why should the different vices of those people in the next pew prove that their religion is mere hypocrisy and convention? You may ask whether it is possible to keep such an obvious thought from occurring to a human mind. It is wormwood, it is. Handle him properly and it simply won't come into his head. It is sometimes so hard to look at the beams in our own eyes when there are so many motes in everybody else's that we can find. My favorite story about Joseph Smith, I really love this story, has to do with how he approached the moat beam problem of judging others. It's written by a man named Jesse Crosby, and he says this, I went one day to the prophet with a sister. She had a charge to make against one of the brethren for scandal and telling stories about her. He offered her his method of dealing with such cases for himself. When an enemy had told a scandal, a story about him, which had often been done, before he rendered judgment, he paused and let his mind run back to the time and place and setting of the story to see if he had not by some unguarded word or act laid the block on which the story was built. If he found that he had done so, he said that in his heart he then forgave his enemy and felt thankful that he had received warning of a weakness he did not know he possessed. He said to the sister he would have her do the same, search her memory and see if she had not herself laid the foundation for the scandal that annoyed her. The sister thought deeply for a few moments and confessed that she believed she had. Then the prophet told her that in her heart she could forgive that brother 
who had risked his own good name and her friendship to give her this clearer view of herself. I wish I were there. Now God is the only proper judge. The Lord says to all of us, I release you from the need to judge. You're all released. I will do all the judging. And the reason that God is the judge is because he is the only one who can see all the factors. He can see the man from the inside out. You and I can only see him from the outside in. What can you ever really know of other people's souls, Lewis wrote, of their temptations, their opportunities, their struggles? One soul in the whole creation you do know, and it is the only one whose fate is placed in your hands. If there is a God, you are, in a sense, alone with him. You cannot put him off with speculations about your next-door neighbor or memories of what you have read in books. What will all that chatter and hearsay count? Will you even remember it? When the presence in which you have always stood becomes palpable, immediate, and unavoidable. Remember at the end of the Gospel of John when Jesus tells Peter that he will essentially be crucified. He tells him that's how he's going to die, which is quite shocking news to Peter. And so Peter turns and he sees John the Beloved following, and he asks a very human thing. He says, and what about him? And Jesus says, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. The only person we have to worry about is ourselves and whether or not we are following or if we are not following. Now, what we tend to do with individuals, we do with religions. Screwtape was grateful for religion. The wickedness of other religions, he says, was the really live doctrine in the religion of each. Slander was its gospel and denigration its litany. How they hated each other up there where the sun shone. All said and done, my friends, it will be an ill day for us if what most humans mean by religion ever vanishes from the earth. Too much of people's faith is what I would call anti-faith. It isn't so much what I strongly believe in, but it's that what you believe in is wrong. Too much faith is really anti-faith. And Lewis went through a, a great turmoil in his own life trying to find truth. In his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he finally came to this remarkable conclusion. The question was no longer to find the one simply true religion among a thousand religions simply false. It was rather, where has religion reached its true maturity? Where was the thing full grown? Where was the awakening? Now you and I would answer that by saying we believe the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is where religion has reached maturity. Not full stature, but maturity. This leaves us open to explore and to examine a lot of wonderful things in other faiths. In St. Patrick's in Dublin, Jonathan Swift, who was the minister there, uh, his words are written in that church. 
He said, we have just enough religion to hate each other and not enough to love each other. Lewis made a comparison of Christianity, but we could apply it to all religions, to a house with a hallway and rooms leading off the hallway. And the different rooms were the different faiths. And he said, some people stay in the hall longer and they try and find their way, which room suits them. But he said, we, we, we can't stay in the hallway forever, right? You, you must make a decision. And he concludes that little parable with this. You must keep on praying for light. And of course, even in the hall, you must begin trying to obey the rules common to the whole house. And there's a lot in common to the whole house. In all religions, certainly in Christianity, more to unite us than divide us. Much of the conflict in the world, for instance, in the Middle East, is religious of nature, where faith is half anti-faith. Above all, you must be asking which door is the true one, not which pleases you best by its paint and paneling. In plain language, the question should never be, do I like that kind of service? But are these doctrines true? Is holiness here? Does my conscience move me towards this? Is my reluctance to knock at this door due to my pride or my mere taste or my dislike of the doorkeeper? And I love the way he ends it. When you have reached your own room, for you and I, Latter-day Saint room, be kind to those who have chosen different doors and to those who are still in the hall. If they are wrong, they need your prayers all the more. And if they are your enemies, then you are under orders to pray for them. That is one of the rules common. Well, that leads me to our last Turkish delight. Not because it's the last Lewis wrote about, but last time will permit. And the last of his life. And that is pain and trials. Pain was a double-edged sword for Lewis. He wrote a whole book on it called The Problem of Pain. He wrote a very personal account of pain and trial in a book called A Grief Observed, which we'll talk about in just a minute. Pain could drive you to God or drive you away from him. In the silver chair, one of the Chronicles of Narnia, there is a, a marsh wiggle named Puddle Glum, one of two of Lewis's favorite characters in the Chronicles. Puddle Glum was half human, half frog, and he had little webbed feet. And they're down under the ground with the green witch this time, who is thrumming on a mandolin instrument with a fire going into which she's cast enchanted dust to lull them all into a sense of not believing in Aslan or Narnia or anything they hold true, this kind of numbing incense filling the room. And Puddleglum sensing what is happening, that they're just being lulled into non-faith, does a very courageous thing. He sticks his webbed foot onto the fire and burns it and squashes out the incense and the smell. And Lewis writes of this, that moment, the pain itself made Puddleglum's head for a moment perfectly clear. 
and he knew exactly what he really thought. There is nothing like a good shock of pain for dissolving certain kinds of magic. So pain sometimes could drive you to God. My own experience, Lewis wrote, is something like this. I am progressing along the path of life in my ordinary, contentedly fallen and godless condition. Absorbed in a merry meeting with my friends for the morrow or a bit of work that tickles my vanity today. A holiday or a new book when suddenly a stab of abdominal pain that threatens serious disease or a headline in the newspaper that threatens us all with destruction sends this whole pack of cards tumbling down. At first I am overwhelmed and all my little happinesses look like broken toys. And then slowly, reluctantly, bit by bit, I try to bring myself into the frame of mind that I should be in at all times. I remind myself that all these toys were never intended to possess my heart, that my true good is in another world, and my only real treasure is Christ. And perhaps, by God's grace, I succeed. And for a day or two, I become a creature consciously dependent on God and drawing its strength from all the right sources. But the moment the threat is withdrawn, my whole nature leaps back to the toys. Thus, the terrible necessity of tribulation is only too clear. God has had me but 48 hours, and then only by dint of taking everything else away from me. Let him but sheathe that sword for a moment, and I behave like a puppy when the hated bath is over. I shake myself as dry as I can and race off to reacquire my comfortable dirtiness, if not in the nearest manure heap, at least in the nearest flower bed. And that is why tribulations cannot cease until either God sees us remade or sees that our remaking is now hopeless. It could drive us to God. Now it could do just the other. And towards the end of his life, Lewis faced the great crisis of his life. Also the great joy. He was a bachelor for all of his life. Later he met a woman named Joy Davidman, a Jewish convert, as he had been an atheist convert. And they shared a wonderful relationship because they had both come from such vast distances to find unity in a faith and belief in Christ. She had a sharp wit, a deep intellect, and uh, Lewis came to love her. He married her first so she wouldn't have to leave England, kind of as a nice gesture to her like he would do something for a friend. But later he came to be deeply devoted to her, especially as she was dying of cancer and considered her then truly and fully his beloved wife. Before he met Joy, he wrote about the danger of love and how love may give us some of our greatest trials. There is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable impenetrable, irredeemable. 
The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is in hell. Well, he felt that a little bit as Joy got cancer and died a slow and painful death. And his faith in God was put to the test. He survived that test of his faith by writing his thoughts day by day as he went through this great, great crisis. And anybody who has ever had problems, the death of a loved one, or deep trials that crushes your happiness will understand some of the things that he wrote. Here's a little flavor from A Grief Observed. It is hard to have patience with people who say there is no death, or death doesn't matter. There is death, and whatever is matters, and whatever happens has consequences, and it and they are irrevocable and irreversible. You might as well say that birth doesn't matter. I look up at the night sky. Is anything more certain than that in all those vast times and spaces, if I were allowed to search them, I should nowhere find her? See her face, her voice, her touch. She died. She is dead. Is the word so difficult to learn? Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face. A sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in our time of trouble? Well, he tries to talk himself out of it. I'm a kind of a rational, reasonable, mental person. I understand perfectly well trying to argue yourself out of not hurting. Do I hope that if feeling disguises itself as thought, I shall feel less? Aren't these notes the senseless writhings of a man who won't accept the fact that there is nothing we can do with suffering except suffer it? who still thinks there is some device, if only he could find it, which will make pain not to be pain. It doesn't really matter whether you grip the arms of the dentist chair or let your hands lie in your lap. The drill drills on. Now in time he began to rebuild the faith. And he did it by the choices. What were the choices offered us about God? He's a bad God, an apathetic God. There is no God or a good God. And if there was a good God, all these things were necessary. But is it credible, he wrote, that such extremes of torture should be necessary for us? Take your choice. The tortures occur. If they are unnecessary, there is no God or a bad one. If there is a good God, then they are necessary 
for no even moderately good being could possibly inflict or permit them if they weren't. And so perhaps, with God, I have gradually been coming to feel that the door is no longer shut and bolted. At times, uh, our own cries drowned out God's voice, his comfort. Joseph in Liberty Jail did not receive peace, God's voice, until he had received letters from three people, Emma, Don Carlos, and Bishop Partridge, that calmed his soul down so that God could speak to him. Was it my own frantic need that slammed it in my face, Lewis wrote, the time when there is nothing at all in your soul except a cry for help may be just the time when God can't give it. You are like the drowning man who can't be helped because he clutches and grabs. Perhaps your own reiterated cries deafen you to the voice you hope to hear. On the other hand, knock and it shall be opened. But does knocking mean hammering and kicking the door like a maniac? Other factors uh, may be part of the equation. The trials may teach us things about ourselves, our testimonies we cannot learn any other way. Maybe the trials are not a test or a proof, but a revelation about ourselves to ourselves. Lewis felt that about this. God has not been trying an experiment on my faith or love in order to find out their quality. He knew it already. It was I who didn't. In this trial, he makes us occupy the witness box and the dock and the bench all at once. He always knew my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize the fact was to knock it down. When I lay these questions before God, I get no answer, but rather a special sort of no answer. It is not the locked door. It is more like a silent certainly not uncompassionate gaze, as though he shook his head, not in refusal, but waving the question like, Peace, child, you don't understand. But lack of understanding did not mean that we did not know what to do. And in typical, practical Lewis fashion, he comes right to the heart of the matter. Now that I come to think of it, there's no practical problem before me at all. I know the two great commandments. I better get on with them. And his faith is rebuilt, and away he goes. At the end, he regained that comfortable, conversational, old, familiar, friend, casual relationship with deity he had for so long, believed in, enjoyed, and recommended to all of us. Notice the trusting, childlike tone of some of his final words. Sometimes, Lord... One is tempted to say that if you wanted us to behave like the lilies of the field, you might have given us an organization more like theirs. But that, I suppose, is just your grand experiment, or no, not an experiment, for you have no need to find things out. Rather, your grand enterprise. To make an organism which is also a spirit, to make that terrible oxymoron a spiritual animal, to take a poor primate, a beast with nerve endings all over it, a creature with a stomach that wants to be filled, a breeding animal that wants its mate, and say, now get on with it. Become a god. He's back to the hub. He's back to the central idea, the pole star of his life and ours. We're to become gods. 
And that is no simple transition. But we may trust, as did Lewis, that our Father knows how to do it. Our challenge is to just stay on the path. One of Lewis's favorite creatures in Narnia was a little mouse called Reepicheek. In the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, they are sailing in a ship towards Aslan's own country. And there comes a moment when they have to decide whether to turn back or keep going. And Reepicheek, who usually has a whole lot to say, is silent. And so Lucy asks him what he thinks. I think his answer is what Lewis would want all of us to feel as we try to walk the path to Godhood. Aren't you going to say anything, Reep, whispered Lucy. No, why should your majesty expect it, answered Reepicheek, in a voice that most people heard. My own plans are made. While I can, I sail east in the dawn treader, the ship. When she fails me, I paddle east in my coracle. When she sinks, I swim east with my four paws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. Someone will be waiting for Lewis and Reepicheek in the sunrise. I suppose for Lewis, someone will be standing next to his beloved Aslan, whom at one time in his life he tried so hard not to meet. Once very near the end, speaking of joy, I said, if you can, if it's allowed, come to me when I too am on my deathbed. Aloud, she said, heaven would have a job to hold me, and as for hell, I'd break it to bits. She knew she was speaking a kind of mythological language with even an element of comedy in it, but there was a twinkle as well as a tear in her eye. There was no myth and no joke about the will, deeper than any feeling that flashed through her. I'm sure when he passed away on the day President Kennedy was assassinated, that joy and Jesus waited for him. And so we come to the end of our journey. I would like to end with Lewis's own testimony. I think it only fitting, not my own. In a little piece called His Theology Poetry, he wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I can see it, but by it, I see everything else. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. This concludes this presentation of Of Lions, Dragons, and Turkish Delight C.S. Lewis for Latter-day Saints By S. Michael Wilcox Executive Producer, Corey Maxwell Recorded and edited by Kenny Hodges this has been a production of the Deseret Book Audio Library.